Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. Last time we were together, we covered the second half of chapter 3, and we saw how Paul exhorted us to forget which was behind. You remember that. It was a couple weeks ago because we had our baptism last week, but Paul exhorted us to forget that which was behind and press towards a mark, a prize, something that he thought was really important. What is that important prize, Paul? He tells us in verse 10 of chapter 3 that it's that I might know him. Paul wanted more than anything in this world to more intimately know Jesus. And we said that that word know was a special word in the Greek, that it meant know by intimacy, to know something by by intimate exchange. And I gave you the example of Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. You remember that? You know, you and I can look up at the moon and see it every night, but none of us know the moon the way Neil does because he walked on it, right? One small step for man. You remember that. I wasn't alive, but I've seen the video, right? Paul, Paul, Paul tells us that that is the goal, not that we walk on the moon, but that we have an intimate experiential knowledge of Jesus. I want to know him by experience. I don't want to know him by theory. Come on. Amen. I don't want to know him just because somebody told me about him. I want to know him because I know him. I don't want to know about my wife. I want to know my wife. Amen? You see, our our relationship with Jesus is just that. It's a relationship. And if we don't have an intimate knowledge of Jesus by experience, then we're, we're living way short of God's best for our life. So now we get to verse or to chapter four, and I'm going to intentionally push through this last chapter because we're, in my opinion, we're in the strongest, meatiest parts of this book, and um, I think just about every verse is its own sermon. And so I'm going to do the best I can to give us as much meat from each verse, but not take nine more weeks to finish this chapter, okay? So uh, verse one, we read again, therefore my beloved brethren and longed for, excuse me, therefore my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown. What an amazing statement. I don't know about you, but these first two verses for me are ones that are easy to pass over because they're kind of like Paul giving a nice greeting. But when you slow down and you actually read through everything, you get such a weightier message from the Apostle Paul. Look at his fatherly care for the people of of Philippi. Do you remember that at the beginning of this series, I talked about how how this church was so special to Paul, that this was his people, this was his group. These were the ones that were the first people to ever partner with him in the ministry. This was his maiden voyage, so to speak. And so Philippi and the Philippian church and the Philippian people all have this very deep place in Paul's heart. And so he he speaks to them with such fatherly care. He loves them so much. This verse is the heart of a father. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown. Paul was so proud of these people. And it would be criminal for us to just pass over that verse and not recognize Paul loves these guys like a father loves his children. 
Now, verses 2 and 3, he says, I implore Euodia. We were actually thinking about naming Claire Euodia, but then we settled on Claire instead. I'm sure she's probably pretty happy. Yeah, that was, that was on the short list, honey. You, were, you came close to that. I implore, <laughs> I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be, of the sa- <laughs> to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Do you do what I do when I read a verse like this and that is just skim over it real fast? Just, oh yeah, let's say hi to so-and-so, talk to Euodia and Syntyche and, you know, Brother Eucalyptus and all those brothers that are over there. (laughs) Just say hi to all them folks. I, I do that. I glaze over verses like that. But as I was studying it this week, I thought, wait a minute, time out. There's, some, there's a principle in what Paul says here that is super good, and we can't pass over it. Notice what Paul is urging them to do. Two things. He's urging them to be in unity. And number two, he's urging them to partner with one another in the development of the ministry of their local church. This is hugely important. Paul, I, this is why I love the Bible. Paul says more in a passing greeting than most people say in a lifetime. Right? The Holy Spirit through Paul says more in these few verses. He's encouraging them to partner with one another. He says, help these women. Help these ones. They labored with me in the gospel. They're doing kingdom work. Partner with them. Get together with them. Get on the same page. This is hugely important because whether intentionally or unintentionally, we've created a mindset in our society where the responsibility of all ministry and the responsibility of the gospel going into our community falls only on the shoulders of church staff, right? I've, you know, Sean and I have had this conversation. We've talked a lot about this. If we're not careful, we'll develop a culture in our own ministry, and in, we see this happen all the time. We develop cultures in our ministry where it's, uh, you know, it's a ch- if it's not a church-sanctioned event, then I'm not worried about it. And, and you know, it's, it's the church, it's their responsibility to witness to my cousin, right? It's their, all I got to do, if I can just drag my, you know, roommate kicking and screaming to the church, then I'll just leave him there and the church will fix it. The church, it's the church's job to just figure all this stuff out. It's not my job to lay hands on the sick. That's the church's job. It's not my job to disciple my neighbor. That's the church's job. It's just church staff. That's what they get paid for. It's quiet in here today. Yeah. Amen. This is that, listen, I don't think this is intentional. I think this is an unintentional consequence that happens. Nobody sets out with that mindset. Nobody says, we're going to create a, a system wherein nobody gets to do anything. No. Yeah. Yeah. It happens unintentionally. But it's, it's, it's possible for us to get so good at organizing our ministries that we forget that it's the job of the entire body of Christ to take part in the calling to ministry. Because here's the reality. You can reach people that I'll never reach. There's people in your life, in your circle of influence, that you can actually be the light of God in their world, and I'll never get the chance to do that as a pastor. Right? 
See, Paul, Paul flips this whole concept on its head by reminding the Philippian people of, of the people that are within their local church body who are doing ministry, who need the help of the rest of the church. He says, listen, listen, call up Euodia and call up Syntychus and call up Clement and find out what they're doing. Just, hey, Clement, what are you doing for the good? You need some help, brother? And partner with these people that are working in the ministry in your local church. I want to tell you something. This is one of the reasons that we do next steps you know, we talk about next steps a lot, and we're going to be talking about it more. This is one of the reasons that we do it, is to help people discover the whole purpose of next steps is not just so that you'll know who we are as a church, but so that you'll get to know what God has put in you. Part of the exercise of next steps is to discover the gift and the calling that God has put in your life. You're going to come away from this knowing more about who God has made you to be, and hopefully feeling empowered, and that, that you can actually take part in the ministry that happens here at High Country Christian Church. Anybody excited about that this morning at all? Amen. I, listen, I, it's my goal to work myself out of a job. It really is. It's my goal to raise you up and put equipment and tools in your hand so that you feel empowered to go reach this community for the sake of the gospel. Amen. That's, that's what Paul is turning our attention back to. He says, hey, partner with these ladies. They're doing kingdom work. Amen. Yeah. Now he goes, he continues. I don't want to get stuck there anymore. We got a lot more to talk about today. Verse four, he says some amazing things. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul is never, Paul never seems to be far from reminding us to rejoice. He just never does. It's just constantly, I mean, he says it so many times in this book. It's like 13 times he says, rejoice in the Lord in four chapters. Unbelievable. I want to give you my definition for rejoicing. This is not the Bible definition nor the dictionary definition. This is the Josh Thurman definition. But I think it's helpful, and I think it's based on the Bible. My definition for rejoicing is to intentionally. Everybody say intentionally. intentionally. You don't do this by accident. Intentionally practice the activity of joy over and over and over and over again. Amen? That's the Josh Thurman definition of, of rejoice. To intentionally practice the activity of joy again and again and again and again. That's why it's called rejoice, not just joyce. It's joy again. Rejoice. Do it again. Yo, yeah, you know, I was happy in 1989. Well, okay, it's 2019. Get happy again. Amen. I had a great day last year. Well, okay, let's have another great day. Amen. You can do, you know, you're in charge of your day. You can have a great day on purpose. You don't have to let the day decide what it's going to be for you. You don't have to let the month or the year or the decade decide what it's going to be. As a matter of fact, if you and I do that, we'll constantly be disappointed. Amen. Can we get real for a second? If we don't make an intentional choice to rejoice in the face of, of, of challenges and situations, we'll constantly fall victim, we'll constantly become prey to the situation and to the circumstance. Intentionally practice the activity of joy again and again and again. I'm reminded of a testimony that I heard 
from a pastor who was, when he was young, he was dealing with discouragement. He was so challenged by the situations that he was facing in his little ministry at that time. His ministry has since become much larger. But this was years ago, and he was pastoring a church like ours, a small country church, you know. And he said he would get so discouraged because he would preach the word, and then nothing would happen. And he'd get up the next Sunday, and he'd preach the word, and then nothing would happen. And he'd get up the third Sunday, and this went on for several years, and he started to feel burnt out. I'm convinced that there's a lot of ministers that get burnt out, not because of anything other than that they haven't learned how to rejoice. Amen. We talk a lot about burnout in the ministry. It's not a biblical concept. Amen. That's all I'm going to say about that. So I'm remembered, I'm remembered, I'm reminded rather of this pastor's testimony that he came to a place of discouragement where he felt like he couldn't make any headway. And he said, I started to go into the sanctuary of the church during the middle of the week when nobody was there. And he said, I would start to on purpose shout praise and I would pray and I would worship and I would dance and I would sing and I would make a big hoopla of rejoicing for the Lord. And he said, every time I did, I went in depressed and I came out full of joy, brimming with excitement about what God was doing in their church. And I believe that long-term, that activity actually fueled him for all the success that he has, uh, has since seen in his ministry. So many people miss out on a life of joy because they don't really understand the concept of rejoicing. The action of joy, if you're taking notes, please write this down. If you're not taking notes, please write this down. The action of joy has to come before the feeling ever does. The action of joy has to come before the feeling ever does. I like what Dr. John C. Maxwell says. Matter of fact, I love this quote so much that I have it written down in my office downstairs. He says, you're more likely to act your way into a feeling than you are to feel your way into an action. Isn't that good? Ay, yeah, yeah. You're more likely to act your way into a feeling than you are to feel your way into an action. Folks, that's faith. That's faith. You can rejoice on purpose when you have no natural reason to rejoice. You can, you can, you can, you know, when I was a kid, we used to call it praising on credit. We used to say, I'm going to praise God on credit. I haven't seen it yet. That was something from our old Pentecostal church when I was a kid. The pastor, I'm going to praise the Lord on credit. Amen. That's the, hey guys, that's what rejoicing actually is. It's intentionally practicing the habits of joy when you don't see any reason to. That pastor said he never once felt like praising. He never once felt like shouting or dancing, but he did it anyway. And I'm convinced that so many of us miss out on this life of joy that's available because we just haven't looked. We, we put the cart before the horse. We want the joy without the sacrifice of rejoicing. We always say, I want joy in my life, but you don't ever start rejoicing by faith. Bill Johnson says it this way, in the world, we rejoice because we have joy. In the kingdom, we have joy because we rejoice. Amen. In the world, we rejoice. Oh, I'm happy. Yay. Why? Because I have joy. I got a reason to be happy. Yay. 
In the kingdom, we get joy by intentionally rejoicing. We kickstart the process. We say, you know what? What I read in scripture trumps what I feel. I'm going to praise God anyway. Come on. What I read in the Bible tells me I'm more than a conqueror. Sure, I feel like it's a terrible day, but I'm going to lift my hands and say thank you anyway. This is still the day the Lord has made, even when you don't feel like it. What did David say? This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Even when I don't feel it. Tell your neighbor, say, even when you don't feel it, you should still rejoice. Now we move on to verse five. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. I like what the word in my margin says for gentleness here. It says graciousness or forbearance. I looked up the word forbearance because that's not really a term we use very often. You hear it in banking when it's talking about forbearance on a loan. So I looked up, what does forbearance mean? And a good word that we could use is the word leniency. Leniency. Paul says, let your leniency be known by all men. The Lord is near. I have a question for you. How many of you are thankful this morning for times in your life when you were given the leniency that you needed but didn't deserve? <laughs> Let me ask the question one more time just for those in the balcony. Amen. Uh, we, <laughs> how many times in our lives were we thankful for the leniency that we were given which we needed but we didn't deserve? Aren't you glad that God is merciful? This is something that the Lord's been teaching me. When it comes time for me to have to show leniency to somebody I don't want to show leniency to. I know this never happens to you, but humor me for a second. When it comes time to show leniency, you know what I keep getting reminded of? Lord, if you could forgive me, I can forgive them. Lord, if you can show mercy to me, I can show mercy to them. Lord, if you'll give me leniency, I'll give them leniency. And then he says this phrase, the Lord is at hand. This, this jumped off the page to me when I read it in the Greek. The way this is spelled out in the Greek is a reminder to us that the Lord is always near. In other words, we have constant access to God and to his presence. What if we were to make decisions based on the fact that we wanted to maintain our fellowship with the presence of God? We have constant, perpetual access to God anywhere, anytime. You don't have to come to church and light a candle to pray. There's nothing wrong with that, but you don't have to do that to get to God. You can pray in your backyard at three in the morning. Why you're in your backyard at three in the morning, I don't know. But if you were there, you can pray there, right? You can pray while you're waiting in the bank line, waiting to get to the teller. You can pray, and at any time, we can, we're, we're always close to God. So the idea, the snapshot of what Paul is giving us here is, what if we started to make decisions with, uh, with the other people that we're around? What if we showed leniency because of the fact that God is near us all the time? What if I, in an effort to maintain my connection to God, showed you mercy? Wow. What a thought. Because here's the reality. 
When I refuse to forgive, when I refuse to show gentleness, when I refuse to give leniency to people, it might hurt that relationship, but it completely disrupts my relationship with God. Paul tells the the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, do not grieve the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is grieved, not, I, when I was a kid, I used to think the Holy Spirit was grieved, you know, when, when somebody spilled their coffee in the church, you know, when somebody made a noise, it was real quiet worship, and somebody coughed. I was like, oh, they're grieving the Holy Spirit. No, they're, they're irritating me. That has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, right? When some, you know, when kids cried while somebody's preached, stop grieving the Holy Ghost, you know? No, no, you know what grieves the Holy Spirit? When you don't forgive people. What grieves the Holy Spirit is when you're mean to people in the parking lot. What grieves the Holy Spirit is when, is when we forget to walk in the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So what if instead of reacting in the flesh, what if instead of that I started to show leniency to my brother or my sister so that my relationship with God stays intact because the Lord is near? In other words, Jesus is watching. Use wisdom. Be smart. Do better. <laughs> Get it right, because God's watching. Amen. I don't say that to put condemnation or pressure on you. He's merciful to you so that you can be merciful to other people. So let's, let's just endeavor to walk in love so that we can maintain our connection and our fellowship to the Spirit of God. Amen? Oh, I've got to hurry up. Ay ay ay. Verse 6. Are you doing okay? You still tracking with me? All right. Verse 6 and verse 7, I want to, t- I want to take these as a, as a group, these two verses together. In these two verses, Paul teaches us how to break the cycle of bad mental health. Currently in our society, mental health is taking a front seat in the conversation. How many of you have realized that? It has, hasn't it? Mental health's a big deal. We have millions of people who are concerned about their mental health, and there's a lot of viable reasons for this, not the least of which is our obsession with comparing ourselves to one another on social media. Amen. Our total and absolute addiction to technology, right? And our absolute addiction to a fast-paced lifestyle. We try to do, we do more in one day than our grandparents did in a week. Yet somehow they figured out how to get more done than we do. Uh, maybe they know something we don't know. See, we're, we're addicted to some things. We're addicted to a fast-paced lifestyle. We're addicted to a culture that is um, consuming, constantly consuming. We're addicted to social media. I can't go anywhere without taking a selfie, you know? I, there, I was listening to a comedian one time. He says, I don't call it a selfie. I call it a lonely. <laughs> I thought, boy, that's really good. It's sad, but good. We're totally addicted to comparing ourselves to one another. We can't just ever be happy with who God created us to be. Don't think for a second that that doesn't influence your and my mental health. And it's a, mental health's become a buzzword. It's become a very important, trendy topic. And I normally don't like trendy things, but this actually gets my attention because it's very important. One of the common responses, think about this, one of the common responses when people ask us how we're doing is to reply that we are what? Busy. This has become, busyness has become a badge of honor. Running around, just hustling, just never stop to smell the roses, you know, never stop to say thank you. Never stop to just ask myself, what's God saying right now? 
So mental health has taken a front seat. And I want you to hear what I say. Please hear me. It's very good that people are starting to take stock in how healthy they are mentally. That's very good. If I can share my concern with you, it's this. That as people address their mental health, as people assess their own mental health, we have to ensure that we don't gravitate towards the problem rather than the solution. You see, society, I'm just going to say this and be bold about this, the world doesn't have a good answer for mental health problems. Amen? And I can say that with confidence, and one of the reasons I can is because my lovely wife went to college and studied how to help children with disabilities. My wife has worked in a field where mental health is at the forefront for a long time. And so we've talked, we've spent a lot of time talking about this. What the world teaches us to do is to cope. That's, come on. What the Bible teaches us to do is conquer. That's right? right? That's right. Oh. So I want to say this delicately so that I don't offend anybody. And I really, I'm being as delicate as I can because I love you. Oftentimes we find comfort in the label that we're assigned rather than seeking the solution. Well, it's not my fault. I'm bipolar. It's not my fault. I'm, I have anxiety. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I have ADHD. It's not my fault. And here's, here's the deal. Here's the deal, okay? And I hope this is helpful to you. It's easier for you and I to abandon responsibility when we're given the option to sit comfortably behind a label. It's easier for me to just shed the responsibility when I'm given that option to just kind of sit comfortably behind a label. And I'm not saying that to make anybody feel bad. I'm, I hope that that gives you some hope. It's, listen, the, the path of least resistance is the one we'll always take. So if I find an easier way for me to remain comfortable, then I'll just do that. If it's easier for me to just say, hey, you know what? I can't do anything about my anxiety. It's my anxiety. I was born with it. That's just how it is for me. And so I'm just going to do what I got to do to cope with this. I'm here to tell you there's a better answer. There's a better hopeful answer for you. You don't have to live with anxiety in your life. You don't have to live under the thumb of depression. You don't have to live behind the label. We're label-busting, freedom-announcing Christians. The Bible way is the way of total and complete victory. The Bible calls you a more than a conqueror. You're meant to live in victory, not in crisis management. Amen. You need to write that on, on your mirror with lipstick, man. I, I am not called to live in crisis management. I'm called to live in total victory. The Bible says you're more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus who loved you. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? 1 John chapter 3 says, for this reason was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. ADHD comes from the devil. Anxiety comes from the devil. Fear comes from the devil, and you don't have to live with it anymore. Glory to God. I want this to come across as hopeful, not as condemning, because I love you. And if you get, listen, listen, if you're struggling with this, there is no shame. Amen. 
There is no shame. If you're in a bad spot mentally, you don't have to be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. We just don't want you to get stuck there. We want to help. Talk to me. Talk to my wife. Talk to one of the staff members, the leaders here. If you need help, just come out and reach for help. We want to help you because there's victory for you. Now, the Bible gives us a recipe for total victory. I've got about 10 more minutes, and I'm going to do my best. The Bible gives us the recipe for total victory in our mental health. Remember, I said verse 6 and verse 7 are about mental health. And I just find it interesting that if it was an issue in Paul's day, we shouldn't be surprised that it's an issue in our day. People are people, no matter what time frame they're in. So the Bible gives us the recipe for total victory in our mental health. If you'll practice what you see in these next few verses, you'll have guaranteed success in the area of mental health. I can guarantee it. Why can I guarantee it? Because it's the Bible, it's God's word, and he never fails. This is not the word of Josh. This is the word of God. Amen? Now he says in verse 6, be anxious for, you say it, nothing. How many things does the Bible give you an excuse to be anxious for? Nothing. Zero. Be anxious for nothing. This word anxious in the Greek is the word which means to be troubled with cares. To be troubled with with cares. How many times did Jesus say things like, take no thought, saying, let not your heart be troubled. Oh, ye of little faith, why did you fear? Martha, you are troubled over many things. It's actually the same Greek word used over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. And it's the Greek word which describes any kind of care or worry, any kind of fear. It could be fear of danger. When the, ball, when the Bible says, be anxious for nothing, that word anxious could be the fear of danger. Could be worry about your job. It could be worry about your performance on your job. It could be worry about, oh, this is a big one, FOMO. Fear of missing out. It's a big one. Just ask a college student. Fear of missing out, it's huge. That's why we live on Instagram, because we want to see what everybody's doing. I don't want to miss out on anything. Oh, man, did you hear about that party that happened yesterday? No, I didn't hear about it. Oh, man, you missed it. And then they'll go away tormented because they're not as cool because I didn't live up to what somebody else lived up to. I didn't didn't meet the standard that was set for me by society. And so now they walk around with depression on their shoulders going, "Ah, I just don't measure up to my friends. That's called FOMO. That's fear of missing out. And it's not permitted in this scripture. (laughs) It could be anxiety about the future. I have to guard my heart against this one a lot. What's the future going to look like for me, for my family, for my children? It could be concern about what somebody thinks about you. Oh, come on. That's a big one. Amen. All of these different concerns are all found in this word anxious. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. This is the point, guys. We are not supposed to be overcome with anxiety or care in anything. In anything. So, Pastor Josh, how do I live free from anxiety? How do I do it? Good question. I'm glad you asked. 
The first two clues to living free from anxiety are in the previous verses. Number one, rejoice always. You want to get free from anxiety? Start by rejoicing. Can I have a better amen than that? You want to get free from anxiety? Start by just intentionally rejoicing. Number two, be gentle and lenient. You'll find it much easier to live free of the opinions of people when you make the decision ahead of time that you're going to be gracious towards them. Ooh, you missed a great chance to say amen. That's a good tweet right there. It's much easier to live free from the opinions of people when you've ahead of time made a decision that I'm going to be gracious, merciful, and lenient towards that person. Now, the next clues are from the rest of this verse. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. How do you live free from anxiety? By prayer and thanksgiving. Amen. Prayer and thanksgiving. You see, when anxiety comes, it comes in the form of a thought with a problem. Think about this in your own life, okay? It comes with a, as a result of a thought with a problem. It's like a thought shows up to your mind, and it's carrying a backpack full of supposed problems. And this thought is just trying to come and park itself in the living room of your thinking, This thought shows up at your mind's door with all these supposed problems in its backpack and it's saying, hey, I just want to make myself at home here and just get comfortable on your couch. You've all experienced this. I've experienced it. A thought comes to your mind, a hypothetical, something that has never even happened, probably won't happen, and you and I sit there and entertain that thought. We say, hey, we we roll out the welcome mat for problems. And we say, yeah, hang out for a while. And we start to entertain that thought. And we think, about its, we think about its conclusion. I'll never forget when my wife and I were first married. Y'all doing okay? I'm almost done. I'll never forget when my wife and I were first married. And I called her one day on the phone. I got off work early. And I called her on the phone. And she usually beat me home from work. And so we didn't have any kids. We had, God, we had no responsibility. It was, it was quite interesting. And... <laughs> We spent our days eating, eating takeout and watching DVDs. That's what we did every day. And we got home, and I got home, and she wasn't there. And normally she beat me home. And I got, I got really concerned because I called her, and she didn't answer. And so here comes the thought with the backpack full of, of presumptions about what could or could not have happened to my wife. Here comes the thought, dressed, ready to occupy my mind. And I started to think, God, where could she be? And I waited about four minutes. Call her again. <laughs> Send a text message. Where are you? Are you okay? Wait another 90 seconds. Call her again. <laughs> Come on, y'all know. Don't make me feel bad. You know you've done this. Right, right? We've all done this, huh? Where are they? What's happened? And we, we assume the worst. See, this is the problem of the human race. We always gravitate towards the worst. And I'll never forget, I'm in the middle of panicking, getting ready to call the police and send out a search party because I thought she's dead somewhere. And all of a sudden, she comes in the door. Where were you? Oh, sorry, I got stuck in a meeting late. My phone died. 
And I'm like, Charlie Brown, you blockhead, why did you get so worried about where she was? This is how anxiety and fear thoughts infiltrate our mind. They show up dressed up with a bunch of conclusions that never happened. I mean, most of the things we're afraid about never actually even pan out anyways. Like something like 98.5% of them. So how do I live free from that anxious thought? How do I live above all of that noise? Paul says the answer is prayer and thanksgiving. Prayer and thanksgiving. See, when the thought comes to your head, when the concern comes to your mind, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to take that thought and give it to God in prayer and then thank him for the answer and the solution. And then what do you get in response? You get the peace that passes all understanding. And what does that peace do? It guards your heart and your mind. <laughs> we only get to pick up his peace when we first laid down our care. We only get to pick up his peace when we first laid down our care. Prayer will become so powerful for you if you learn the value of taking that thought, taking that care, taking that anxiety, taking that thing to the Lord, holding it before him and letting go of it. I put in my notes that these two verses here, these were how Paul teaches us to break the cycle of bad mental health, break the cycle of depression, break the cycle of anxiety. I'm telling you, this is, this is, this is like getting a prescription from the doctor. If you'll do this, if you'll take this as religiously and as consistently as you take the pills that the doctor gives you, you'll live free from mental care. Verse seven and eight, excuse me, verse six and seven are how we break the cycle of anxiety. Verse eight is the recipe for sustaining that mental health. What does Paul say in verse eight? Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are Pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. I don't have to remind you what it means to meditate. We've talked about that many times here at our church. You understand that it means to repeat over and over and over, to chew and chew and chew and chew on the truth of God's word. What are you and I to meditate on? Things that are noble, things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that have a good report. Don't feed on the bad report, feed on the good report. 
Part of one of, the re- one of the reasons why people are so anxious and have such poor mental health in our country is because they spend all their time feeding on a bad report. This is why they don't print good stories on the front page of the newspaper. Because they know we want, we gravitate towards the bad stuff. Don't tell me about the victory over here. Tell me about the building that burned down over here. All right? Guys, we got to be countercultural. We have to swim upstream. We got to change it. Listen, the world's not going to change it for you. You got to change it. You and God got to get, get on the same page and change it for yourself and say, you know what? I'm going to only think on what is pure and lovely and noble and virtuous and has a good report. I'm going to go after what God says in his word and I'm going to feed on that more than I feed on the rest of the other stuff. I love what Bill Johnson said. He said, he said if you receive, if you feed more on the news media than you do on the word of God, your anxiety is self-induced. That's a hard one, but it's true. It's really true. I want to close by reading this verse, verse 8 in the Message Bible. If verse 6 and verse 7 were the, were the recipe to break the cycle of bad thinking in my life, if that was the way that I break the cycle of, of, of anxiety in my life, verse 8 is how I sustain that healthy mindset, that renewed mind. Verse 6 and 7 show me how to break the curse. Verse 8 shows me how to live in the blessing all the time. Listen to this from the Message Bible. Summing it all up, friends. I say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst. Somebody say that. The best, not the worst. The beautiful, not the ugly. Things to praise, not things to curse. Put into practice what you learned from me, what you heard and saw and realized. Watch this. Do that, and God, who makes everything work together, will work you into his most excellent harmonies. Oh, my God. You want to live a life that's free from the strain of anxiety and depression and fear? You got to learn to just take this simple prescription from Philippians 4. I'm here to tell you it's easy. It's easy to break the cycle of anxiety. I mean, I'm talking about stuff that might have been in your family for generations. God, in a moment, God in a moment can break that cycle off of your life and teach you through these verses how to sustain a winning attitude. A gla- Listen, I believe this, this, this is not just like, you know, positive talk. This is Bible. I believe Christians are supposed to be glass half full kind of people. I believe that when things are going to hell in a handbasket in the world around us, we are supposed to have the biggest smile on our face. Oh, man, I know, yeah, I know the stock market tanked. Oh, thank God, thank goodness my dad owns the universe. Amen? 
I mean, yes, I know. Oh, man. I know that things look crazy. There's a like bonkers election getting ready to happen in our country. People are rioting in the streets. It looks crazy in the world. Thank God that Jesus is still in charge. I mean, thank God that my God still owns the universe. He's still, listen, his word has not failed. His power has not diminished. He has not changed. Not one tiny little fraction of a bit. He loves you just as much as he did before President Trump was president. He'll love you just as much as he did after President Trump is not president, whenever that happens. He'll love you no matter who's in the Loval office. His blood is still just as powerful no matter what happens on Wall Street, you are covered because your father owns the universe, man. I believe we are supposed to be glass half full kind of people. And if you struggle with mental health, I'm here to tell you today could be the last day that you ever struggle with it. Come on, get excited. Today could be the moment. This could be your breakthrough. Let's stand up to our feet. Let's stand up to our feet. We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.